Hello and welcome to Grace Church Vienna. Probably you have heard Klaus Potts' sermon about Daniel chapter 1 a few weeks ago. If not, you can still find it on our previous podcasts. Today, Klaus will continue this series through the book of Daniel by tackling chapter 2, where we find more about our limitations, our confidence in God's power and authority. So let's listen to Klaus' sermon for today now. remember one preacher in a former church I was attending. He always started the sermon like, I tell you a story. I like to do that as well because it's a nice way to get the attention of the audience. Today I won't do it. And I hope the sermon will not fall through like the opera Parsifal did in Paris because the ballet was not in the third act but in the second so the audience was a little bit disturbed. And there are other preachers like John MacArthur, uh, who I like very much. He's a great preacher. He starts, he's more a preacher teacher, and he starts like this. Open with me, if you will, your Bibles to Daniel, the end of chapter 1, and let's continue our great study, and you will be so blessed with what I have to tell you now and what we will cover, Jan, uh, Daniel chapter 2. So... Then at the end of the days which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the official presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all did not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were in all his realm. And you will see this verse kind of summarizes what happens uh, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. There will be a dream that we are dealing with in this chapter, and we will hear God's message to the people and to the people then and to the people now, to us. The message comes through a dream. That is often the case in the past in the Old Testament. The vehicle is Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a Jewish prophet, but a pagan man. Because Israel has become apostate. So God talks through pagans to the people. And the interpretation of the message comes through Daniel. First, we have a dream. Well, picture yourself... In Mesopotamia, it's hot there, maybe summertime. The king goes to bed on the terrace, on, at the top of his palace, on a bed probably covered with, a, with one sheet only, and he's thinking, well, about business affairs. What do I do? What things are up now on the agenda in my empire? Where will my next campaigns, military campaigns, go to? and so on, and then finally falls asleep and has a dream. Actually, it says he has dreams. Do you as well? I normally have dreams, but <laughs> I don't remember them. And that's the same thing that happened to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And very often, my wife asked me, how was your sleep, honey? Well, I slept well, except that I had a horrible dream at the end. What was it about? Can't remember. 
<laughs> so that was the case. And well, and what do you do if that is? In that time, people were a little bit superstitious because dreams tells, tell them something. And he wondered, what is this dream? Or would this dream have told me? And I can't remember. He was getting nervous. And so he calls all his people, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the astrologers. Yeah? And you, we know from archaeology that they had archives of dreams. And they registered at a, um, a database. Well, this was the dream. This is the interpretation because this happened. So, and now they thought, well, we'll do the same with Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So they asked him, what was the dream about? Can't tell. So they say, no data, no interpretation. But that was just what Nebuchadnezzar wanted to hear. What was the dream about? So they couldn't Google their register, and Nebuchadnezzar had no help from the magicians. Maybe Freud could have helped him, but he wasn't on the globe yet. And the dilemma was he didn't get any help. And the deficiency was, the fourth point, uh, the third point, that the, all these dream experts said, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. Their gods, where are they? They had no, no access to the real God, although the God is among us. That was the deficiency. And then there was the decree. The decree was, there has to be consequences. If you can't fulfill or do what I ask you to do, there are consequences. And a little uh, play on words. The way ahead was away with the heads. Chop them off. Punishment. Um, capital punishment. So now Daniel comes on the scene. He looks out the window and hears a little bit what's going on. But Daniel was also among the dream interpreters. We, we heard that, what I read today. He was one of the best, ten times better than all the magicians. So he was also the target and uh, could be condemned to death. And already an official, Arioch, was knocking at the door and said, hey, what about you? You have to come. And Daniel inquired, what, what's the case? What's going on? And Arioch explained that. And Daniel risked and said, well, let me go in front of the king and ask for time. And uh, maybe then I can interpret. And the interesting thing is, the magicians before, the dream experts, asked for time, and they didn't get time. They, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said, well, you're the experts, do it. No time, you should do it. And then Daniel gets time to prepare overnight. That's the interesting thing. And what is the idea here? To be successful, you need composure, you need confidence. 
maybe body language. Yeah, there are some people come and here I am, yeah, and, and the other one already says, okay, this guy is good. But on the other side, you need courage. We call it in, in German Zivilcourage, yeah? You need courage. And communion with friends. You need help. You need a team in the back. In that case, Daniel urged Hananiah, Michelle, and Azariah to plead, pray for mercy, because they were under the sentence of death as well. In a crisis, you have to go on your knees. And this is what Daniel did. And God answered in the middle of the night. Daniel received information during his sleep. Well, I read it. For he gives his beloved even in his sleep. Yeah. He reveals mysteries from the darkness and brings the deep darkness into light. In German, then seinen gibt es daher im Schlafe. So, go to bed if you need help. <laughs> and then he receives insight what Nebuchadnezzar saw in his dream. And Daniel, of course, thanked God. He commended God, he praised God, he gave the glory to God in verse 20. If you have your Bibles, then you can follow, please. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He has control over time. He sets up kings and deposes them. He has control over authorities. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. If you have a brain, he will give you thinking, critical thinking and understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. He has control over the unknown things and he has control over darkness because he is light. And it says, Thank you and praise you, O God, my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You made me known to me what we asked of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. So, the official Arioch just hurries to the king and said, well, Daniel can interpret. Let him interpret. So Daniel come. And um, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, only God in heaven is able to reveal and give insight. Verse 27 and 28. Revelation comes from God and not humans like Daniel. So now we go and into the dream is revealed, or recalled, sorry. It's recalled first. Yeah, here. Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that the king saw a large statue. The head of the statue was made of gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay, looked frightening. But what was more frightening was that a stone not cut from human hands crushed it. The statue collapsed. Just a, a little background. Baked clay is something what we call tile now, fleecen. Yeah, pretty hard material, but still it doesn't... Um, mixed with iron. The dream interpreted, before going into interpretation, actually the interpretation of the interpretation, which I will give you, 
Let me make a few observations. Now we have to click again. The statue had the look of a man. It is man's history. And this is also used by Satan. From top to bottom. From head to feet, gold, silver, bronze, iron and clay. The quality of the materials deteriorate. The stone and the mountains once dirt, earth, then solidified, seemingly weaker than metal, earth-shattered material, a metal, something supernatural is happening. That's interesting. So we are already, you know, something, so everybody is into supernatural, especially their magic. So let's see what we can, let, let's interpret the interpretation. The first part, the head is gold, and it's Babylon. That's the only part that is addressed by name what it means. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them at all. You are that head of gold. Sounds like Adam in paradise, yeah? Man ruled over everything in the garden. And you see here the picture maybe from, from last time I was here front, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So the next one, the next part of the body, after you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. And that's all what we learn about the head and the shoulder, the chest and the arms, they are silver. Well, but it's obvious that it will be the Medo-Persian Empire because it succeeded in time after Babylon. It has two parts, the Medes and the Persians, therefore two arms. That's all what we know. It lasted 220 years, ended by Alexander the Great in 330. And it started after the um, at the end of the exile of the Jews, around 540, 550, it started and then it, it conquered uh, Babylon later. So, number three. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Who's that? After the Medo-Persian Empire in that area came the Greek Empire, and we can conclude that this was Alexander the Great because he titled himself King of the Earth. So it was the um, kingdom over the whole earth at that time, known world. Known world means people knew the extent of that empire because they traveled and did commerce, trade. It, um, and mind that, Alexander the Great established that empire in 12 years. Incredible. He, like a whirlwind, he swept through the area. And I remember there was a two-part series in National Geographic getting into details how 
he fought the battles. An absolutely military genius. He did every time something that the enemy didn't expect, and therefore he won. And at the end, he was sitting in Babylon with these ease and alcohol problems, probably, and was crying because he didn't know what to conquer next. What a sad end. So now we come to the fourth one. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. All the others, what he means is the Greek empire fell into four parts. Uh, the parts were run by the Diadochi, Diadochen in German. They were, who were they? Antigonos, Cassander, Ptolemaeus, and Seleucus. Seleucus and Ptolemaeus were the bigger parts. Ptolemaeus was in Egypt, Seleucus was in the Mesopotamian Persian area. Just as you saw, the feet and the toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw the iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. Interesting. There's a lot of said about the mixture clay and iron. We get into that. But let's get to, to polish up your history knowledge from high school. Due to a legend, Rome was founded on the seven hills in 753 BC, and at the end of the second century, this empire sat on all the shores of the Mediterranean Sea. Quite an accomplishment already. And the extent that you see is from 117 AD. I think it was Trajan. And it spanned from Great Britain to the Euphrates, from northern Europe to Africa. One of the eastern outposts was known as Baalbek. Baal is in the name, has something to do with the spiritual situation. It became a monarchy under Augustus. The two legs symbolized the split under Diocletian in 276 AD and Theodosius in, seven, in 375 AD. I haven't researched why there are two separations and did the first not work? I don't know. I didn't have time to do that. And by the way, we have also, here in Austria, I was told by a friend of mine to do with the Roman emperors, you know, Canuntum was the um, Roman ca uh, capital of the province here. And you always wonder why was not Vindobona, Vienna, the capital? Guess, guess why? When you keep your ears and eyes open, the Amber Street, Bernsteinstrasse, from the Baltic Sea to Venice went through Carnuntum. And why? Because there was a, a shallow part in the Danube where you could cross the Danube. Here in Vienna, not. There you could. So, in Carnuntum was Septimus Severus, commander of the 10th Legion. He was from Leptis Magna, a big city in um, nowadays Libya, and he was an African, I mean dark-colored. 
And when he heard that the throne in Rome was empty, took the legion and marched to Rome and seized the throne. So we have something to do with the Roman Empire. Very interesting. And, well, this was the beginning, more or less, of the, the soldier emperors in Rome, Soldatenkaiser. That was that. And by the way, Leptis Magna, very interesting. I was there with my friend. And we walked through the ruins there. And the ruins there were at least as large as the first district here. And it was a port. So, but the, and the Roman Empire split. And the eastern part, Constantinople, it split more or less right through the middle here. Mm-hmm. Greece was in the eastern part, yeah? Italy was in the western part. So you know where the dividing line is, more or less through Bosnia, Bosnia, Serbia. And it lasted till 1453, where it's run over by the Ottoman Empire. And what about the mixture of clay and iron? Remember, the, this is now my interpretation. Please, it's not an absolute. I'm not claiming that I know everything, but this is one interpretation of view, uh, way to uh, view it. You know, the Roman legions had a standarte standard, like a, a stick and a plague on. It's an SPQR, abbreviation for Senatus Populusque Romanus, Senate and People of Rome. So there was the division, the Senate and the people, the rich and the poor. The rich one who had the affluence, who had the nice, you know, all the Roman villas and, and, the, and the mosaica. The mosaica you find, I've been in, in Morocco. There's an open-air museum and the mosaica is there 2,000 years, as bright as ever. Nothing is, is ruined. I forgot the name of it. I've seen it in, in Carthage. You, you see it in, in Canuntum, incredible the, um, the luxury they had, they had their bath and, and, and so on. But then there were the people who had nothing to eat, who were um, dependent on food donation. Panem et circenses, give them entertainment, circenses, circus games, yeah, amphitheaters, fights with the animals and the lions and the gladiators and so on, movies about that, and something to eat, panem food. So we have that now still. And I remember when I was a student, I thought, well, and read about Latin America, other parts of the world, where the rich and the poor are so vastly separated in income and, 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 and wealth. They said, well, I'm glad that we don't have it here. We have it here now. The, the first millionaire was uh, was Vlasic, the, the, the founder of Billa, I think. And now we have Mateschitz, and, he, and I don't know how much he owns, but it doesn't matter. So what was the end of that empire? What is left? We have first the Roman Catholic Church. It's, it started in the Roman Empire, and it's still active Nowadays, it spans the whole world. Then we have, or we had, the Holy Roman Empire of German nation. It started in 962, and it lasted until 1806. The first emperor, 
supposedly Charlemagne, Karl der Große, crowned in 800 on Christmas Day in Rome. And the first emperor, real emperor, 962, Otto I. And the Habsburg Franz II, who was the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire of German nation, Heilige Römische Reich Deutscher Nation in German, yeah, um, abdicated as emperor in 1806 and continued as emperor of the Habsburg Empire. Then we have the European Economic Community, in German it's called EWG, started on the basis of the Roman treaties in 1957. But the EU, we think EU, they started in the, on the, uh, with the Treaty of Maastricht in, in 92. But what is also interesting, if you look at the curriculum of the law students, Roman law is taught in the first semester as a basis. So, I, I don't remember all the offices, but the, the Roman Empire, Emperor held three offices. And with three offices, he controlled the whole state and administration. One was that he was allowed in Parliament, in the Senate, the first one to vote. So, if the Emperor votes yes, everybody follows and votes yes. Okay, this is how you <laughs> do it. And the feet have ten toes. And I remember, friends, when I was in the States, it was on the, and the EU, EWG, had ten members. Yeah, it's now fulfilled the prophecy. Edge, now we have 27. <laughs> so, human wisdom is limited, yeah? Don't interpret events until they happened, and maybe uh, ten years later you will look back, ah, that was it. Wait a little bit. So, the question is now, what do we observe so far? God, he makes the nations great, then destroys them. He enlarges the nations, then leads them away. And in Romans 13, 1, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. God rises empires and lets them fall. Remember last time, or the first time um, I was going on the geopolitical situation for the book of Daniel, the Neo-Babylonian Empire has, had its only purpose to cover the time of the Jewish exile. Before that, it was a little bit on the rise, and afterwards it fell. That was it. It's over. Like, like uh, Murphy's Law, friends come and go, enemies accumulate. <laughs> if you are the head of a state, you have probably more enemies than friends. But the thing was that all the empires mentioned in the statue, they ruled over the territory of Israel. Others were not mentioned. There was no Hitler, no Napoleon. Yeah, well, here we are. Egypt was on the decline. Das Mittlere Reich, the Empire of the Middle, I call it in China, was not mentioned. The Empire of Genghis Khan, incredible extension, was not mentioned. Well, of course, it didn't cover Israel. The Habsburg Empire, the Commonwealth, 
although there was a British mandate of, over Palestine. Mandate is a, that means it, it, there was a kind of an authority there, but they didn't own it more or less. Yeah? It was not part of, of the empire. Napoleon was there in Egypt, probably walked, uh, marched through Palestine, and Hitler's thousand-year empire was very short-lived. And the duration of the empire increases. All disintegrate. And the stone made the whole statue fall. One stone and the whole is falling. And the rock and the stone earth wins over metal. So this is now our observation. And now let's go into the next. At the end of the dream is told... While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not of human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces. At the same time, it became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the earth. In the in the times of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will endure forever. Especially this verse 44 deserves attention. Detailed attention. We'll come to that. The observation is, all kingdoms are smashed at the same time. We saw the Babylonian Empire go, Medo-Persian Empire go, the Greek Empire go, Rome. Big question, is it over, is it not over? And how can that happen? How can this, the picture tell us the stone destroys all the empires at once? I will give you a solution to that. The dust, the remnants, and the kingdoms were swept away. Nothing was left. <sighs> Gone. And the rock became a mountain. Well, how can a rock destroy a metal structure? How can empires that succeed each other disintegrate at the same time? Is there a literal interpretation of the kingdom possible? My answer, yes and no, depending on what, what viewpoint you take and on what level are you thinking. The Bible talks many times about a rock. I take just one out. Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, and a sure foundation stone. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that rock was Christ. Christ is the stone. So the rock is Christ and the mountain is the kingdom of God. It was announced in the fourth empire. The four kingdoms are consecutive in history. All three are gone. One is still alive when Jesus was on earth. So when Jesus came into the world, his first coming, was this already the stone, the rock that smashed everything? Rome existed after, continued to exist after Jesus died and went to heaven and went, was raised to heaven. 
The emperors end politically, economically, but not spiritually, intellectually. That's the reason. That's the key. The kingdoms are real kingdoms, but parallel they stand for spiritual kingdoms as well. When the stone hits the statue, then something must have been left over from the empires that are gone. From our present time, it is easier to look at the legacy of those kingdoms. Here we have it. Look, what did those kingdoms leave us? What was their legacy? Well, there was rebellion in Babylon. They rebelled against the Assyrians. They had astrology, the magicians, the soothsayers, and so on and so on. The false religion, religion started with Nimrod. And Nimrod wanted to build a building that reached the sky and the Tower of Babel. And what was the consequence? Everybody babbled afterwards. They had great science. We owe much from the, in math and science especially, to the Babylonians, the Chaldeans. Also, the Indians are great in, in math. Then Medo-Persia, they had a legal system. Read the book of Esther. If the king says something, it's chiseled in stone. Only the king or has to can reverse it. And they have military power. I think this was the empire who had the first professional military army. Greece left us philosophy. You know, four Greeks and five philosophies. Like, uh, read the part in Acts about when Paul was in Athens. Paul was speaking and everybody came together. Is there a new philosophy coming? Yeah. So this is what, what they were after. That democracy, that art, look at the statues. Absolutely gorgeous, yeah? Man became the measure of things. We find this revived in the Renaissance. Renaissance means birth, uh, rebirth. Then the French Revolution, man was the measure of everything, the human intellect. And then we end up in modernism and evolution. Man is the greatest achievement of nature. Yeah? Greek philosophy is behind that. And Rome, I mentioned already, the legal system, the military power, and they were builders of Rome's, and, and everybody trembled when they saw the sign SPQR and heard sinister dexter, sinister dexter. Yeah, everybody was already flat on the ground and said, okay, we surrender. But the, it was a divided society. Clay and metal, rich and poor, citizens and slaves. So, that means that the fifth kingdom is a spiritual one. Jesus said in John 18.36, my kingdom is not of this world. Would, this is what, what, what the Jews were expecting after the exile in, in Babylon. The Messiah is coming and building up an earthly kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. 
God's kingdom is at hand. Repent, change your thinking, said John the Baptist. It is that we have to get rid of all the legacies from the previous empires, the humanism, and change our thinking that we are in God's hands, we can accept Jesus Christ, we are citizens of a new kingdom. That is the key of the whole thing. The fifth kingdom started under the fourth kingdom as a spiritual one, and the fourth kingdom was at that time still earthly. So you see, we have two levels, the earthly kingdoms and the spiritual kingdoms. But it will be historic when the stone finally smashes everything, when there's the second coming of Jesus, and then it will be an earthly kingdom, the millennium. It is the kingdom of Christ when he returns. The age of the Gentiles will end and the Jewish nation will play a role again. The church will be raptured and gone. You know, I think I forgot to read the verse where it says about them. It is in Luke 21, I think, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus says, addresses Jews and said, now it's the age of the Gentiles, but then when I come will be the end of the age of the Gentiles. So at the moment we're still in the age of the Gentiles. And Daniel says at the end, the great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. That's the message for you. What God is telling us through Nebuchadnezzar and interpreted by Daniel, and we look into Scripture when we find out it is trustworthy. This will happen. Nebuchadnezzar fell on the floor. He thought he could get to God only through Daniel. But Nebuchadnezzar did not worship Daniel. Daniel and his friends were put in high positions in the empire. There was the Scylla and the Charybdis, the, the hard place and a rock, either condemnation or reward. And they got, Daniel got the reward, and he asked Arioch, the official, not to kill the astrologers. I don't get it. Maybe God would have said, well, let's get away with all the astrology. No, he let it happen. And the summary. Now, purpose of the dream for Nebuchadnezzar, his power has limits. The Chaldean gods are inferior. They are not existent, actually. They are no measured in comparison to God. And for Daniel, God is in control. And for us, God is all-powerful and wins in the end. We can have confidence in his word. The legacy of the empire, empires is the wrong way. For you, the message, repent, reshape your thinking. Change your thinking. God's kingdom is at hand. Thank you.